Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. You know, when, when we talk to people, uh, is what we care about to genuinely help them understand where it is, right? So you talk about, you know, working with other communities. What's owed is complete transparency about why we're there, about what we're doing, about what it means. And, you know, much of the time that tends to be done in a sort of bureaucratic, um, thoughtless way, when we often don't think about the reality of the listener, right? What what is their perspective and, and what is it that we need to do as communicators to offer them uh, or to invite them into the conversation as equal participants instead of telling them what we think or assuming, you know, that they're understanding. And so I, I teach a communication design class and, and, a, and the first thing I always say in class is it doesn't matter what you mean to say, right? Intention counts for shit. In communication, it's what somebody gets from it. Mm. Unless you're sitting in front of someone and you can, you know, and you can go back, double back and try to explain, right? It it just doesn't matter what we mean to say. What matters is the gap between what we put out and what someone understands. And on the internet, there's absolutely no way to understand that. Yeah. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. 
Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this, you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Cheryl, welcome to The Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Well, I'm delighted to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it is my pleasure to have you here. So I found out about your work because somebody on your team wrote in and told me about your book, The Intergalactic Design Guide. And as somebody who is not really a designer, but obsessed with all things design and constantly tinkering with things design, I was really intrigued by the ideas and the concept. But before we get into all of that, uh, I want to start by asking where in the world did you grow up and what impact did where you grew up end up having on the choices that you've made with your life and your career? That is such an interesting question. Well, they're, <clears throat> they're all kinds, right? I grew up in Western Pennsylvania in the part of the world where unless you play football, uh, unless you love football, <laughs> unless you're an athlete, you sort of are invisible. And I was very nearsighted as a kid. I wore glasses from the third grade, and so I couldn't catch a ball. And I stayed in and colored. <laughs> and, I've, and I've attributed my interest in design and, and art to that. Uh, I have no mm-hmm. idea if that's true, but <clears throat> it, was, it was my childhood. Um, I think there are other things about growing up in the middle of the country that are often overlooked. And I work with um, some folks in Buffalo, and I find the same values there. There's something about 
the, this part of America that holds honor in very high regard. If you say you're going to be somewhere for someone, if you say you'll do something, you do that. And, and people's word is very important. And I never appreciated what it when I lived there. But as I traveled and as I moved around, I really came to see this sense of honor and justice as being really important and something to uh, something to hang on to and something to appreciate. And, and it's also a sense of, you know, um, when someone is in need, you show up, you know, you don't call and say you feel bad for them. <clears throat> you actually you actually show up. And, and that I didn't have kids, my husband and I, uh, we were having too much fun. And, and also I just, I always had, um, hesitation about the environmental footprint of our species and the way we reproduce. Uh, and so there isn't, this is the, the most important thing in my life is to figure out how to, contribute something and how to use what I know to try to create better conditions for, uh, for people who don't have them. And it's, I mean, that's not, that sounds altruistic and it sounds like a goody, right? Um, but it's actually, um, it's actually what I love to do. Yeah. You know, I, I love that you brought up being this sort of nerdy kid in a town where, you know, what's valued most is to throw a football because I grew up in uh, college station, Texas, which is very much like that in a lot of ways. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, I always tell people, I said, you, you watch Friday night lights. If you grew up in Texas, you look at Friday night lights and you think, yeah, that's, that's exactly how it is to grow up in Texas in a small Texas town. It's such an accurate depiction. Uh, but I wonder, uh, how you find your own sense of identity in an environment in which your identity is overshadowed by something as big as athletes and, and people basically are the center of attention in a town like that? It's really difficult. And, you know, and by the way, this is not meant to <clears throat> inspire anybody's <clears throat> pity, but, uh, you know, I mean, I was, I was known as Bob's sister because <laughs> my brother was, my brother played football and was what, uh, the, the, ideal, um, guy in Pittsburgh. It was, I had years of, of sort of painful search for who I was going to be instead, because where I grew up, the natural, uh, outcome. And I sort of mean that word for my life was to marry a high school football coach and have seven kids and, you know, be happy be happy, um, not having any ambitions beyond that. And so that was very unappealing to me and I left, but I then had to do the work of filling in who I was. And that was that extended, right? To be, I became a designer. I became a business strategist. I became a person who channeled organizations issues and in order to do that and to be good at it, you sort of have to empty yourself out, right? You take on other people's, um, you, you take on their concerns, you, you internalize, uh, you internalize what they're going through. And at a certain point in my life, and this was much later, I realized that I was really good at figuring out what was best for other people. 
and who they were, right? Developing a voice for them as I would communicate for them, but that I had paid a real price and had once again sort of avoided figuring out who I was instead. So uh, you've hit on something very heavy and um, and long-term. I've been known to do that to people. <laughs> uh, you know, I think that it's interesting. You mentioned that your brother played high school football. I wonder, what do you think the most important thing that you learned uh, was from your brother and from his experience? I believe in sports. I believe in the lessons that sports teaches about uh, about collaboration, about caring for something bigger than individual success. And, and those are also values that I grew up with. Uh, even a little bit of, and this was frequently heard in my neighborhood, you know, the idea of playing through the pain, right? Not to, uh, indulgence in, um, sort of unimportant, um, issues and, and, and things that, that, prevented the larger win were were sort of diminished in importance and not not acceptable so yeah i mean i think there's a lot there's a lot to the myth or a lot of real real value that's delivered through the myth of sports not least of not least of which is you know there's the big difference is between people who watch and people who show up and play and and that's, I think, something that has tremendous relevance to our democracy and our and our species right now. Yeah. Well, I think it's really a, a distinction between being a spectator or a participant in your own life. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, you, or you getting your nose broken. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, it's funny. I think that one of my big regrets from high school was that I didn't play a high school sport. I was in band, but I always felt that that was one place where I missed out just because I wasn't a very good athlete. I just thought, oh, this is painful. This is awful. But anytime I hear people talk about the coaches that they've had, I feel like I missed out on a lot of very valuable life lessons. Yeah, but you probably also live, missed out on the torment of yeah. coaches who would demean people who weren't the stars. Yeah. There was some, always an ugly side of it. Yeah. So you know, there's something you said in the book, which I, I think is really relevant to the conversation we're having. You said, what we accept as common sense is narcotic, a hegemony of shared practices and beliefs we never questioned because they're all we've known. And I wonder why is it that we don't question all these shared practices and beliefs and, and what role does our social programming play in the fact that we don't question it? Another very big, complicated question. And I think it, there's a real relevance to the role of women in our society and what we accept as a social norm. Uh -huh. uh, and I do think it comes back to that. I was once asked to give a talk at an AIG national convention on why women make less money than men. And I didn't want to talk about it because I, I, I didn't used to ever want to talk about gender. I didn't want it to be an issue. I wanted just to, um, to sort of be equal, but I ended up doing a lot of research and, and finding all kinds of crazy things like women pay their women employees less than they pay their male employees. Women pay themselves less than they pay than less than men pay themselves when they're starting their own company. And that these things do become social norms. They become ways of being that we don't notice because, you know, it's like 
asking the fish how the water is. Mm-hmm. Uh, how do you navigate the dynamics of existing in a society while at the same time violating the social norms that aren't in alignment with your values? I mean, you mentioned earlier that you chose not to have kids because of the environmental impact you thought our species has on the planet. One, I want to know what that is. I'm curious, what is that environmental impact? But I, I think that, you know, in a lot of ways, the people who are creatives, the people who are entrepreneurs, they really do basically challenge conventional norms and violate social norms. And at the same time, they have to navigate and exist within a society where the overwhelming majority of people are abiding by social norms. So how do you, I guess, really, how do those two things coexist for people and how have they coexisted in your life? It's a really interesting word, violate, uh, because it's true, but I think the real fun and the uh, ability that designers and creative people bring to this is that you're kind of the fool, right? You can surprise and delight and charm people with something that's a different way of thinking. And it doesn't always apply, but there is such a sense of creating. And that in itself is so fulfilling that you don't think about what you're not doing, right? You think about what you want to create. And when you hold a vision for a different way of being <clears throat> or a different way of living and and then focus on the conditions for success or you know what has to be true in order to realize that you that's that's consuming right it's not you your it doesn't feel like something's missing you're not thinking about the rules that are being broken you're just living in that um sense of creating something new mm-hmm. uh I don't, you know, in terms of how it's applied to my life, I don't, I don't think we make as many choices as we convince ourselves we do. I mm. think a lot of it just can't be helped. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I think, I think so. I would just, I'm just preparing a, um, a webinar and I was reading, it was an article in the new scientist talking about how whether we are liberal or conservative is actually genetic. And that asking a person that's conservative to be liberal is like asking them to change the colors of their eyes. And I, I think that's true. I just think it's true. You know, we we tend to make decisions when we can't we can't help it anymore, right? I mean, the big life decisions. Yeah. Well, it's funny you say that because I remember this is another thing that really struck me from the book. You said in order to move from helplessly watching what's happening to changing it, we must be able to see, understand, and intervene in the invisible dynamics that drive our behavior. Uh, Yet, you know, you said a lot of the things that we think are choices are not. So what are the invisible dynamics that drive our behavior and how do we learn to see, understand, and intervene in those dynamics? Well, a, a simple answer to that in the context <laughs> of social design is that we actually visualize them. So uh-huh. uh, one example is I'm working on a project now looking at how to diminish the number of young people who move out of foster care, age out of foster care and become homeless. So in a, in a very practical way that involves literally mapping the journey of young people, the services that are available to them, the, the points in time when they are threatened, when they need support and aren't getting it, you know? So, so the social design process provides some very practical easy to adopt ways of seeing. 
Um, and then once you begin to think like that, you just tend to ask or inquire about the systems behind things that are affecting them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I will not talk about our current administration, but you know, fair any... enough. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I really an hour conversation. <laughs> yeah. No, no. But I have to say, this is a digression. Did you see Andy, what Andy Warowitz just <laughs> sent out? Uh, no. It was called Must TV. It said Must TV. Must see TV. It said um, MSNBC is going to be running Obama's um, DNC speech <laughs> at the same time. Wow. That's funny. <laughs> Well, so that I think makes really a perfect segue to getting into what you call the principles of social design, um, all of which I have, I have sitting in front of me. But I think the way I want to go through this actually is to really um, use a real life example. And in this case, I think let's use the Unmistakable Creative uh, podcast as an example of how we would apply all of these principles um, to this project that we've been working on for 10 years. Because I, I, I can't help but wonder what I would learn if I were to run my own you know, creative work through this process. So um, the very first thing you say is that ideas come from the inside, not the top. Uh, can you expand on that and, and talk about how we might apply it in a practical context here or how people could apply it in their own lives? I think you're doing it in that you are using inquiry to learn. You hmm. are not this isn't a show, and there are many, where you've got the answer to how people ought to live, right? Yeah. <laughs> whether it's whether it's people's love lives or job experiences, right? This is the opposite of that. You you are you are looking to uncover wisdom in the people you speak to that's relevant. And so I think you're already doing that. What it means in life is that someone who is isolated, who is not connected to the reality on the ground or in the middle of an organization, simply can't develop ideas and direction that's relevant to what to what's needed and to what people want to do. And so the old-fashioned idea that that the job of a leader is to decide what ought to happen next, or that the job of a designer is to is to present a vision for the future or present a the perfect product that everyone ought to have they're antiquated and and the people who are still trying to work that way are having more and more difficulty doing that that a new kind of leadership is leading from the inside and and collaborating with the people who are needed in order to make something happen um and to to listening and to uncovering and supporting generative ideas that come from come from the people inside and inside and outside is a very funny thing right there is no externality in nature but it means and this is connected to the other principle of you know experts don't have answers you know a big organization cannot hire ex outside experts to solve problems in any sustainable way mm. um, because this needs to be part of the capacity of everyone in an organization. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because even with the little bit of work I do, I'm teaching a writing workshop. And one of the things I'm realizing is that my job is not to, you know, really teach people how to write as much as it is to t change their behavior in a way that enables them to sustain what I've taught them. And unleash what they have to say. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yep, exactly. Uh, 
I think we kind of touched on the idea that questions are more important than answers. You know, we, we've talked about that. I think you can, <laughs> in my mind, I think that is really ultimately probably one of the most important things I've learned from this show. I, I think that concept, though, is really interesting because uh, Peter Diamandis, who's the founder of Singularity University, taught a course uh, about exponential technologies. And he said, you know, as we move towards the future, uh, you're going to be able to find answers to everything and be able to execute on ideas faster than ever before. So he said, really, it's going to be the questions that you learn to ask that determine what you're capable of. And it's the questions you ask that maintain a condition of possibility. Mm. And as we think about AI and as we think about the changes that technology is um, offering or enacting or dictating in our world, uh, it's really important to think about how much of our agency and our ability to question and, and to resist becoming passive acceptors of what's being fed to us, uh, mm-hmm. where that goes and, and how important it is and how we maintain it. Yeah, yeah, no doubt. Uh, another thing you said is to rely on experiments more than plans. Uh, uh, you know, I, I personally, this is central to the way that I do damn near everything when it comes to my creative projects. You know, some of them are, are quick experiments that allow for rapid feedback. But I wonder if you could expand on that and talk about how this might apply in the context of even something like choosing a career. Sure. Uh, the, the, there was a time uh, and there are still a lot of organizations that insist on having a five-year plan buttoned up, a long-term strategic plan. And, and that was really a document and a process that organizations, organizations use to try to control the future. Now things are disrupted and things are in flux constantly and plans don't work the way they used to. They don't have the predictive power. They don't unite people the way they used to. And if we make a plan, as we move through it, what we tend to do is measure progress against the plan. What's lost is a sense of observation, the ability to recognize unexpected opportunities or unexpected resistance, When we experiment and we move into a process of of sort of not knowing in advance what the ultimate answer will be, but paying attention to that real-time feedback that you talked about, right? Um, Mm -hmm. Then we we make decisions much the way nature does, right? What happened when you took that step and then what's the next step? And it doesn't mean that you lose sight of where you want to go. It means that that vision or the North Star becomes even more important. What you let go of is a predetermined expectation for exactly how you're going to get there and what's going to work. Uh And we say, you know, any time when you can solve a problem in a lab with a bunch of other scientists or or technicians, go for it. Right. But any time human agency is involved, any time there are complex interconnected relationships and, and unpredictable human behavior, plans don't work anymore. Mm-hmm. Wow. 
So what's interesting about the idea of experiments and rapid feedback loops is that we live in a world where rapid feedback is more possible than ever before. Um, but I, I also think that that is to our detriment in a lot of ways, particularly when we have you know distracting technologies and information coming at us. So how do you balance that ability to take advantage of these rapid feedback loops with the time that is necessary uh, for deep sort of reflective thinking and contemplation where a lot of really important things happen? I think there is a discipline that um, that leads to intentional questioning and the understanding of feedback and the use of data and the collection of useful data rather than a lot of the nonsense that we just that that you know we see all around us and 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 when that happens and when people become uh when they master that process of you know when we talk about prototyping uh the most important thing is to is to determine in advance what you want to learn right not hey do you like this but but what is it about this particular thing what do you need to know in order to refine it and to advance to the next step when you control that, the feedback you get is very relevant and tends to speed the process instead of dragging it down. Mm-hmm. What we we tend not to filter most of the feedback we get on social media, and it becomes distracting, and it is a time drain, and it and it sort of it's diversion. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. 
Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this, you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. All right. Yeah. Well, I think to me, I I begin to realize at a certain point that not all feedback is created equal, right? You've got, you know, even when I think about the process of doing something like writing a book, you're like, okay, the the people whose feedback matters the most, even when it's harsh or critical, is my editor or my agent. Next come the people who are my super fans who really love my work. And the people who don't matter for shit are strangers on the internet who just feel the need to, to shit on people. Yeah, yes. And you, it, it, what you just implied is that you also understand the rhythm of when that feedback is relevant, if it ever is, mm-hmm. right? There, there are people you want in your head. There are people you're willing to have in your head before you start, mm-hmm. when you're in the middle of it. Uh, sometimes it's nobody, right? Get the hell out because I have to slog my way through this alone. You, you, you know, as with, and this is, this is the beauty of a disciplined process that, that you're not opening the floodgates to everyone and asking them what they think all at once. You control when you put something out for feedback and to whom and, and when it's yours to get to the next phase. And, and, and again, it comes back to that discipline. Um, just one, one story is, um, an extraordinary alum from, uh, our master's program who, Josh Trehoff, who's in the book, he, he was just, and is completely committed to, uh, to convincing people not to waste food. And he, he, a year and a half, he spent sort of beating his head against the wall, trying to tell people to eat stuff that was unappealing to them. You know, don't leave brown lettuce on your plate (laughs) and, and eat those, those overripe bananas left on your counter. And, and he failed continually. And, but, but, you know, that he always took that as feedback and he always would try to figure out what it meant that (laughs) he was either being, being asked to leave a table or laughed at. Uh, and then one day he decided, he, he realized that, um, well, it actually came from, he was experimenting. His, his now wife was making juice uh, and he tried to eat the pulp that was left over. And he said, oh, that's really, that's hard to eat. Um, and so he put a post on Instagram and said, hey, there's this pulp. 
doesn't taste that good. Anybody have ideas for what to do with it? And all of a sudden he woke up this, this incredible energy in people who like to create and shifted the conversation from don't do this to, Hey, what if we, what if we thought about this thing together? All you people who, who like to like to cook and like to take unusual ingredients and do something with it. And, and that became his feedback loop. He had this audience that he could talk to all the time, but it was very controlled. You know, he would ask questions and he controlled the feedback that he got and made sure that it was relevant to what he needed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, well, I think that that makes a perfect segue to talking about this idea that you say that creating isn't the same as solving problems and that limits inspire uh, invention. So how, how do you, you know, make that distinction between creating and solving problems? Because it's funny that now that I'm thinking about this and, and kind of chatting with you, uh, I, I work with a content strategist and copywriter on my team, and he and I have very different jobs. My job is to write and to create. His job is to figure out how the things that I write solve actual problems for people. It's a, it's a really mm-hmm. interesting contrast because when I sit down to write, I, that's not usually the first thing I think is, oh, how is this solving a problem for somebody? I'm thinking this is something that I'm interested in and I want to write about it. I have to always give credit to a man named Robert Fritz when I talk about creating and problem solving because he articulates it just really beautifully. Uh, He talks about um, problem solving as making something go away and of creating as bringing something that didn't exist before into existence. And if you think about this, and let's come back and talk about how it applies to you because I'm curious – when we solve problems, we tend to live in that problem space and we tend to try to figure out how to make something that we know change. Creating is imagining something that could be completely different than what we currently have. And the process is very different. One requires sort of deep knowledge of a problem and the mechanics and the the context of it. And the other requires a different kind of imagination where we're putting things together that maybe haven't existed before. And so they they have different rhythms, they have different time requirements, they have different processes involved. And they're both needed, but it's really important not to confuse them. And it's really important. I'm always curious when I hear people say that design is for solving problems. Cause I think design is for much more than solving problems. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that it's one of the, it's one of the most fun things about it. Yeah. So, uh, when you, um, I mean, what I heard you saying when you create content and develop new ideas, your producer is really finding relevant places for those to live. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and he's, I, He's, he's listening for problems that he knows people are having and, and connecting them. Yeah. I mean, I think that in a lot of ways, unintentionally, I end up solving a lot of problems, uh, through my, my writing more often than not my writing. And even the questions I ask people like you, or or what I jokingly say, my attempt to to go battle my own demons, I just happen to do it in public. And some people happen to benefit from it. Uh, you know, that's, that's largely the way I look at it is that, you know, I go through this process and, and, you know, usually a solution emerges and it's often a problem I'm trying to solve for myself, but also happens to, to solve a problem for other people. Mm-hmm. Well, it's like in writing that the most granular, specific, and personal details are precisely what make it university, universally relevant. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, you talked about this idea that limits inspire invention, which I, I really love, uh, mainly because I've noticed that even in my own life, when I put constraints, even artificial constraints on myself, that is when I tend to do some of my most interesting work. Precisely. And and I think we've all seen that. And, you know, what, what I've come to think of that as is we can't act in generalities. And when a problem is really broadly defined there are no there are no um there're no coordinates for how to even think about it and we tend to bring things or think of things that have been done before and 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 we tend to stay in this level of of living in generalities when something is really specific and um and the the opportunities for for misunderstanding it or for um for solving a problem that isn't you know when a problem is really carefully defined and it's the right the right thing to think about that's when imagination has room to work because y- you have the concreteness of what it is you're trying to do mm-hmm. yeah uh you said that the, you know the real story is context and how people see themselves is important. But there's one line here in particular that caught my attention. You said that identity is destiny. It is assumed context in the world, our self-image as we perceive it in relation to whatever society, company, profession uh, in which we include ourselves. So what do you mean by the idea that the real story is the context? It goes back to some of the things that we were talking about before. It, it goes back to the dynamic forces that are invisible. Uh-huh. The context, the context for for people who are homeless, is mental health and lack of a job and you know lack of affordable housing, and so the 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 context is um, that that is they are the forces that affect how people see themselves and how they are in the world. I talk in the book about having traveled to Nairobi and then Mexico City and then Detroit in a very short period of time and being stunned by the role that identity played in what people thought was possible for themselves. That in Nairobi, where these young people were being courted by Microsoft and Google and being told that you know they are the future and Kenya is the next, um, the Silicon Valley of Africa. They're just full of potential. And, and that potential is what they'll act on. They will realize that. They are realizing that. In Mexico City, no one has come to say, hey, you know, you guys, you're so much better than, than you know. And um, no, no one has presented with a picture of them with a picture of themselves uh, and a place in the world that is bigger or more successful than, than what they have. And so th- there are forces all around some that that form not only the reality but that form our expectations for what we think is possible for ourselves and and in working in social design one of the most important places to work inevitably is to understand how people see themselves in the context of other communities in the context of their country of the issues that they're dealing with of their government because in in learning that um, there's I- I- really useful information about what they think is possible and how easy it will be for them to change. Uh, can we use this process to alter what we think is possible for ourselves? 
I've done it continually. How would one go about doing <laughs> yeah. that? Well, one, one I, I think that the bigger question first really is, uh, how do people figure out what they don't think is possible for themselves? And then how do they use this process to alter that? I'm, I'm, I'm sitting here wondering whether I, how succinct I can be in <laughs> Don't worry about talking that. about this. Not a problem. You know, so, you know, we, we go back to, I grew up as a nearsighted girl uh, in Pittsburgh who couldn't play sports. And, you know, that, uh, that was an unacceptable, not the nearsighted part, I couldn't do anything about that, but that was an unacceptable identity for me. So I spent a long time trying to find a different personal story and trying to see what I had to work with and what I had to offer that was beyond um, sort of what what the external environment had had presented me with growing up. I think it happens all the time. And I see it happen all the time in education. It takes people who are willing to look at other people and listen to other people and help them see what's possible. Um, every single student that comes into our program uh, is transformed by learning new things, by meeting people, by, you know, by seeing possibilities and, and fitting themselves into it that didn't exist before. So I think we do it all the time. I mean, look at, Look at our national culture, right? And the the way that Americans see themselves in the world has has changed tremendously in the past five years. Um, so it 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 happens all the time, and and simply being conscious of what we're feeling and what's inciting those feelings is the way to intentionally shift it and change our thinking. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, you're an educator. Uh, so I, there's no way I wanted to get out of this conversation with asking me this. But if you were to to redesign education uh, from the ground up, or even alter its current form using these principles of social design, what would you change about it? What do you think works about it? What do you think doesn't work? And, and how would you change it using social design? I essentially got to redesign education when I founded this master's program in social design, and honestly, the reason was that I had never been trained in education. I came to it late in life. And my process for developing the program was just figuring out how I got where I got and what I had to learn to get there. Essentially, there's a couple of really big things that are broken about education. One is the siloed nature of any course of study, that one has to decide to be a business person, to be a creative person, to be, uh, you know, to be a technologist, to be an academic, uh, a scientist. And, and, and people are forced to go down a very narrow path. There is no mechanism for integrating what's being learned. There is no easy way to make whole people who have an ability to to think systemically or have an ability to collaborate or have an ability to solve problems across disciplines um so that's really lacking in education and and what employers are looking for now are people who can be creative in business who can um 
who can be disciplined, who, who have soft skills, who, who are critical thinkers, who are communicators. And so that part of education has really failed people. Um, and, you know, Michael Crow has just written a book, um, Designing the New American University, where he talks about the role of research institutions and what they've contributed to the world and and why the you know the potential for them really being the generators of new knowledge again mm, wow but it's not what's happening it's not what you know and and um the whole idea of um who gets included and who gets excluded in schools and the, the financial model, which is, you know, I mean, this isn't, it's not the fault of any particular institution. It is the system. It is the common sense accepted way that, that academic institutions function now. Yeah. I mean, I think the financial model pieces is, is really one of the things that bothers me the most. I, I had a, a guy who's a 2020 presidential candidate here as a guest, and we were talking about this, and he said that he called his student loans his other mistress, and he said it's immoral what we've done to people uh, because, uh, and even you know Chase Jarvis, who founded Creative Live, he said you know student loan debt is largely to blame for a, a sort of anemic economy because. There are so many things that people aren't doing, particularly young people, because of this. Like people don't buy houses, people don't make long-term investments, and and you kind of wonder, wait, how is this going to get solved? I've always thought, you know, how long can you keep lending money out and not having it come back in until you have a systemic crisis where the roof caves in? Uh, I think we're about to find out. Right? Yeah, I could I, um, not agree more. Well, that's that's why I kind of you know, yeah. I just kept deferring yeah. that to. I was like, yeah. you know what, I'm going to work on something that is actually meaningful to me. Uh, um, well, so you talk about this idea of innovation needing a network, uh, which I think is, is fascinating. How does one create that? Um, I understand it, I think, intuitively, because this project is made entirely possible by the generosity of other people. Um, I just happen to be the person who connects them all together. So I really wonder, you know, how do you take that concept and apply it to your life? How do people apply it in their day-to-day life and how do people apply it within organizations? There's a wonderful writer named Meg Wheatley who writes about the power of human conversations and it starts there, right? You, you get clarity about what it is you want to do and you start talking to people. And, and I always say those conversations are the first prototypes you know, what if we tried this <laughs> and you look at somebody and you say, did, did they think I'm nuts? Did that make sense? You know, did that land? Um, every bit of this happens because someone is engaged in helping to think about an idea. You, you don't, you don't go out to people that you don't know and say, Hey, would you be my partner? Or would you invest in my business? You, you start by, by engaging people in thinking together. And then inevitably it's what happens. It happens at any scale you decide to take it to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, um, so you talk about communication as the first act of generosity and inclusion. And, and this one in particular is interesting because um, I think that we live in a world where we have communication capabilities that we've never had before uh, and yet I, there are times when I feel that we've wasted the potential of the internet doing really stupid things. Like I, I've jokingly said that if somebody came back from the early nineties and they saw what we've done, they would say, wait a minute, you're telling me that people watch other people live their lives on the internet. Donald Trump is the president and he's meeting with Kim Jong-un and Dennis Rodman in Singapore. What the fuck happened? Uh, 
yeah. would, would be the, the response. So, you know, I wonder when you, you say communi- communication is the first act of generosity and inclusion, how do you do that in a responsible way that leads to a, a valuable outcome for people? I mean, you know, you said your work is about changing the human condition. And sometimes I think the way we communicate doesn't do anything to change the human condition. I think it makes it worse. Mm. Yeah. Well, and one could argue whether that's really communication. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we really information being forced back and forth. Well, this is something I said, you know, in a recent post that I wrote about um, the opportunity (laughs) using social media. I said, we've basically given up the time with the people who matter most to us to become spectators in the lives of people we've never even met. And that's insane. Spectators and also do, you know, was the advent of everyone's being an author uh-huh. or everyone's being a source of, is that f- to be heard or is that to be understood or is that to connect? Mm-hmm. And I think those are vastly different options. And when I talk about communication being the first act of generosity, you know, when when we talk to people, uh, is what we care about to genuinely help them understand where it is, right? So you talk about, you know, working with other communities. What's owed is complete transparency about why we're there, about what we're doing, about what it means. And, you know, much of the time that tends to be done in a sort of bureaucratic, um, thoughtless way when we often don't think about the reality of the listener, right? What what is their perspective and and what is it that we need to do as communicators to offer them uh, or to invite them into the conversation as equal participants instead of telling them what we think or assuming you know that they're understanding and so i i teach a communication design class and and a, <laughs> and the first thing i always say in class is it doesn't matter what you mean to say right intention counts for shit in communication, it's what somebody gets from it. Mm. Unless you're sitting in front of someone and you can, you know, and you can go back, double back and try to explain, right? It it just doesn't matter what we mean to say. What matters is the gap between what we put out and what someone understands. And on the internet, there's absolutely no way to understand that. Yeah. Well, uh, I think we could probably do an entire episode just on communication design, but um, I'm wondering, I know we've got about 15 minutes left, if you might be able to give us uh, a sort of brief overview of communication design. And let's look at it through something as simple as, okay, I have a blog post that I want to write. How do I apply principles of communication design to writing that blog post? Sure. The first step is to sit with yourself and really think about what it is you want to say. Not what you think you're supposed to say, not what you think people want to hear, but you need to get in touch with how you feel. You need to be in your body. Writers are always in their body, right? You write with the body because you're thinking about um, what things mean, and you can only do that when you translate through your body. So absolutely impossible to overstate the importance of getting clarity on what you what you want to say um, or what you want to be understood. After that, it's having the freedom to there's a wonderful book by Brenda Eulen. It's called If You Want to Write. Mm-hmm. She she lived 
Yeah, she lived a long time ago. It's the most brilliant book. But she, her technique, and it works inevitably, is just just write stuff. Don't think about sentence structure. Don't think about order. Just get everything you think on a piece of paper and then start editing. Yeah. Um, and I and I think that's uh, that's a great way to get it down. After that, there are lots of considerations for how we articulate things, for eliminating jargon, for really interrogating what you write to see if it is what you wanted to say. Um, there's a process of, of practicing and seeing what people get from it. Um, and there's a lot of, um, I think language is one of the, the, the most powerful tool we have to change anything. And, um, and I, and all of my students read George Orwell, um, politics and the English language <laughs> for, for a dose of his wisdom on the laziness, the way we use common expressions to sort of fill out a sentence because we don't want to bother thinking about what we really want to say. Mm, wow. All right. So one last thing which you talk about, and I think this is really near and dear to my heart because it's become very integral to the way that I do my creative work. And you say that process is the strategy. And I think that this is really relevant in the world that we live in because I think people are outcome obsessed. Yeah. So if there is a secret sauce, and I think there is, to this kind of design to social design, it is that participating in this process changes people. When people are invited to speak, when they are listened to, when they learn skills for questioning, for reframing problems, for developing creative ideas and, and understanding how to evaluate them without falling in love, for how to experiment, it changes them. And the transformations that people see happen at the very beginning. They don't happen at the end. I'm working on a big project looking at how to measure the difference that design makes, um, particularly this process on human health. And one of the, the, the things that is emerging with great clarity is that you need to measure the process. You need to measure the impact that it has on people who are going to be changed forever and are going to use those new ways of thinking and new, new mindsets in other situations. And so it's kind of the dumb thing about it, right? But you just start and it begins to move you toward what you're trying to accomplish. Just the act of doing that. Wow. Wow. Uh, well, this has been really, 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 really eye-opening and thought-provoking. Uh, in my mind, one of those conversations that I will probably have to revisit multiple times just to kind of get what you've packed into a very short amount of time. So um, <laughs> I want to finish with one last question, which is how we finish all of our interviews here at The Unmistakable Creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? Uh, gosh, there's a wonderful, I think it's Somerset mom. There's a wonderful quote I use all the time. Um, uh, and I won't get it right, but it says no one who ever tries to be original, um, can succeed at that. Um, but if you truly try to be yourself, you will inevitably, um, be and do something that's unique. I think that's it. You know, I think we don't reflect. I think we don't, we don't force ourselves to think deeply anymore. I think we don't consider how we feel. We don't 
use our bodies. We live in our heads. We live connected to a screen. We work automatically. We do things because everybody else is doing them or because it's the way we've always done them. All of that, the only way to break through it, the best thing to do is to sit in nature. Um, but even when you can't sit in nature, just to sit with yourself and discipline yourself to think about how you feel and what you think and what you, what you want to do. And after that, everything is easy. Mm. Well, I think that makes a really fitting and uh, poetic end to our conversation. Uh, where can people find out more about you, your work, um, the book, and everything else that you're up to? Uh, the program, which we would love to have everyone um, look at, and anybody who wants to do a deep dive, come back to school. It is um, dsi uh, at sva.edu. And um, I'm sorry, dsi.sva.edu. Uh, the book is the Intergalactic Design Guide, and um, anybody can find me on LinkedIn. Awesome. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person, because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch, the skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.